Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Robert, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think this is going to be a fairly redundant question for our listeners, but I always like to start by asking people who they are, what they do, and why they're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, so uh, off you go. <laughs> so basically, I am a gamekeeper turned poacher, I think is probably the way I look, look at it. Um, basically, most of my career until uh, 2005 um, was spent uh, as a journalist, as a wine writer, wine critic, organiser of the International uh, Wine Challenge here and of Seas. But actually, as, a, as before I got into all that, I did um, work for a bit uh, pouring wine in my parents' hotel, not on a daily basis, but I learned a bit about wine service then. I learned a bit about choosing wines for the wine cellar then at a ludicrously young age. And then I went to live in Burgundy. So I've seen that side of the wine production side and wine service. And I've also done a bit of working in a wine retail shop, the, the Barnes wine shop a bit later on. But most of the time was um, spent writing about wine. And then 2005, I stopped doing that. And uh, when Wine uh, International Magazine and the International Wine Challenge were both sold, I had the opportunity to, to have a rethink. And my son had been born that year. And I thought um, maybe uh, he would need food and clothing. <laughs> and so maybe wine writing wasn't necessarily going to be the, the best option. Um, and so that was when, with a couple of partners, we launched uh, Le Grand Noir as a wine brand, um, which we'll be talking about today, I guess. And I started doing some consultancy and also looking at, at the wine business for a magazine published in Germany in English called uh, Meiniger's Wine Business International. Cool. That's quite a good CV. That's, 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 there you go. Um, so, yeah, it, there's loads of stuff I wanted to ask about. Well, all kinds of things. But yeah, I think um, Grand Noir is quite an interesting one to, to talk about, um, partly because of, of your background for it. Um, one of the first things I wanted to ask, because you've, have, you know, have, now you've been writing about it and now you're trying to flog it. How uh, do you think winemaking is uh, transparent enough for consumers, either in terms of labels or what we do to it? I mean, obviously people are more aware of like vegan wines and, and everything else now. Um, do you think it's sort of transparent enough in you know, what goes on behind the scenes? Um, I think it's, a, I think the whole thing... You know, we are all bothered about telling people uh, how it's made and whether it's fined with bentonite clay or um, gelatine or whatever, all which is very relevant if you are a vegan. If you're not a vegan, it's probably not, not necessarily going to be an issue. Whilst we're not bothered with the lack of transparency or comprehensibility, if you like, of um, what's on the label. So, um, you know, basically a, a, a wall of wine in the supermarket is a horribly confusing thing. And most people, you've, I've seen data from various countries, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70% of people say they're, they're really um, confused by the whole business. And we as wine people will make it much easier for them by telling them where the barrels were made, and whether the wine is vegan or not, and whether it's filtered or unfiltered. And actually, they want to know whether Barolo is a grape or a region. Um, they want to know whether it's dry or sweet. They want to know whether it's powerful or not powerful, all those sort of things that we really don't want to tell them. Um, we don't tell them on the front label. We don't tell them on the back label. So I think we've got it. You know, what we want to know, um, uh, you know, we want to know whether it's chalky soil or not. They want to know how it tastes. So how did you design your labels and back, front and back? Um, I'm not saying we got them right, to be honest. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, no, it's a work in, it's a work sure. in progress. Um, it's def definitely a work in progress. From the beginning, the idea of Le Grand Noir was to make things, make well, let's go back even further. Uh, the roots of Le Grand Noir were my, and certainly sort of independently, but my, my two partners, Hugh Ryman, who's a genius winemaker, who's been a flying winemaker, was one of the early flying winemakers. He's made wine, I think, in 17 countries. Um, uh, and Kevin Shaw, label designer, um, probably best known now for Hendrix Gin um, in this country, but a lot of other labels, Claude Siete in, in um, Argentina and, and a lot of others. Um, 
we all looked at, at wine in various ways, and we came up with the, the thought of, wouldn't it be nice to compete with some of those Californian, Australian, New Zealand, Chilean wine brands um, that people seem to be um, seem to like buying in in some volume in British stores? And why why isn't there a European version of those? Um, you know, in the past we had things like Le Piet d'Or and a few other things, but we we haven't really had the equivalent of a Hardy's or a Mondavi or a Conchitoro. Um, really from, from Europe. I, I guess um, maybe um, maybe you could have a, a Rioja or two, but this does not really been very much. And so we thought we'd do that. The only problem um, was that we didn't have any capital, which would be uh, a useful thing to have in these um, circumstances. So uh, we realised that we'd have to work, we'd have to work with our skills such as they were, and to find the right kind of, of business partners. So we went scouring Europe, particularly France. I'd lived in France. Hugh lives in France, uh, has lived in France since he was in his teens. Um, and what we wanted was somewhere where we could produce, uh, A, a range of wines from varietals that people knew and understood and understand, which is what the new world uh, is. Obviously, it's, that's the advantage they've had, with a, as good a climate as we could get. Uh, and scalability, because that's the other thing. You know, could we, if people liked one of the wines we had, could we increase production? And we were incredibly lucky to come uh, to to actually come across in our um, searches a winery called Silly uh, Jean d'Alibert down near Carcassonne in Languedoc, which is basically in the Minervois, and they've got. Um, huge, I think it's the third largest land holding um, in France. It's like 6,800 hectares, 1,200 uh, producers. And they had, when we arrived there, they had Cabernet Sauvignon, they had um, Grenache, they had Syrah, they had some Merlot, um, they had Chardonnay, they had Viognier. So we could see that they had the varieties that we uh, wanted. And secondly, they were incredibly open-minded. Now, at the time, we'd also, I'd actually had the idea that wouldn't it be nice to make a branded Bordeaux? I had this idea that, you know, there should be a Bordeaux that you could buy every year that would taste um, reasonably similar to the last year and give you the um, the pleasure that, that Bordeaux does at a, an affordable price. And the idea would be to blend it from across the region different parts of Bordeaux, and to blend different vintages. And I still think it was a good idea. Um, it was commercially a complete failure as a concept. Um, a, we couldn't persuade most um, retailers or anybody else that, that, that they were um, that, to buy it. But B, um, finding people in Bordeaux who'd understand the concept was even more difficult. <laughs> so we gave up on that. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that um, in Languedoc, the people we're working with there were delightful, are delightful. They understood from the beginning when we came along and said, we want to make a blend of Cabernet and Syrah, um, a blend of Chardonnay and Viognier, even though nobody else was doing it at the time, or almost no one. And so, um, yes, we were the black sheep, Le Grand Noir, the, the black sheep on the label, because we were outliers, because we were doing something that other people weren't doing. But we were working with a, a wonderful team of people at Jean Dalibert who, who actually were absolutely on our side. To be brutal, they understood what we were doing because they knew the, the going rate for Minervois, um, which um, even today, Minervois in bulk, and it's actually done better. But you're, you can buy Minervois in bulk for one, third, one euro 20, one euro 30 a litre. Uh, probably more than you pay for Bordeaux these days. Um, and we can produce uh, an IGP doc or a Vandepe doc as it was then, which we can sell for more than that. So in simple terms, we are a more attractive model economically um, than the AOC of the region. So do, do you sell a little bit of RS in your wines as well to make them kind of internationally... Uh, I won't say there isn't, um, but when, when, I, when I say, basically all wines have a bit of RS. Let's start from there. The chance of a wine having zero RS is very small. You're going to find two, usually you'll find anywhere between one and three in, in any wine that anybody makes, because that's what ends up being there. Um, we do not 
deliberately sweeten our wines. Um, so, you know, you're not going to find the sort of level of sweetness that um, uh, you do in, in many New World wines, for example. On the other hand, we are the whole concept of Le Grand Noir was, and so I'm going to say it's totally uh, without any shame at all, um, I want each vintage to taste as close as possible to the previous vintage, or better, ideally, but it is the champagne model. So when people are buying Paul Roger or Bollinger or um, whatever champagne it is in a non-vintage, they want the character that they know and like. So I don't want people to say, oh, the, the 2020 is uh, this different or that different to 2019. I want them to be getting a similar experience to last time. So I know that's um, sacrilege for many, but it's, it's, it's what um, we sought to do and it's what the new world has done very well with doing. And the way we do that, it's because of the, the range of vineyards that we're working with, which go from 50 meters down by the Mediterranean up to 300 meters up at La Livinière. Um, and with winds coming from every which way, and we've got chalk, we've got gravel, um, we've got some granite, we've got about every soil, almost every soil going. So each of our, we're not, and again, I'm going to um, more sacrilege here, we're not making vin de terroir, None of our wines is a single vineyard wine. Um, every one of them is what I would like to call a vin des terroirs, because I do believe in terroir. In other words, we're blending from some of those high altitude vineyards and the lower ones to A, to create the, the flavors we want, and B, to give us that consistency from year to year. And so there'll be years where, in a warm year, we'll be using more high altitude cooler fruit. So by blending from across all these different vineyards, we can actually keep an eye on alcohol as well. So we don't go over um, 13 and a half, almost never over 13 and a half, and usually between sort of 12, 9 and 13 and a half. And that we're, we're managing to do without really doing anything incredibly different in the vineyard. Though I think as time goes on, viticulturally, we will be working um, harder um, possibly to, to, to delay um, to actually get the, the, the ripeness without the sugar. But it hasn't been a problem so far. Um, and so what we're looking for, as I said, consistency of flavour. Um, would I actually add any uh, residual sugar to a wine? Would I acidify? Yes, to be honest. Um, we don't generally need to, but it's, it's it's a bit like being in a kitchen. You know, does a chef um, add a bit of corn flour or flour, or does he add a bit of lemon juice or whatever? Yes, he does. A usual, he, she does. And we don't normally um, pillory them. For, for doing that. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm starting with the flavor and working back. But having said that, it has to taste, you know, I don't like wines that taste sugared up. I don't like wines that taste oaked up. So I don't like oak chips. Don't, I don't have a problem with staves, actually. Staves work very well, but I don't like chips. Um, I certainly don't like the oak tannins that some people use. And Obviously, acidified wines, uh, which you can taste, um, no. But there was a point a, a number of years ago when a British writer, who I won't name here, was complaining in Australia about um, acidification and how wrong it was. Um, and he was challenged, as I recall, by the Australians to do a blind tasting to see whether he could pick out the wines that had been acidified. And I don't think that ever happened. So, And I lived in Burgundy um, in the days where um, Trapitalization was routine um, every year. And I was in the Haute Côte de Beaune, so up in the hills. They were picking grapes some years at, at under 9% um, natural in a, in a bad year. Um, other years, you know, they might, they'll get to 10 or 11, but they were adding sugar every year. And some years, they were actually illegally putting in two and a half, three percent 3% of the final wine would be um, thanks to... Sugar bought illegally, in part at least, from the local um, co-op because you're only allowed to uh, buy your wine supposedly from the, the government um, registered store and it all had to be uh, recorded. So people went down to Carrefour or Mammut or whatever store it was and um, they would buy lots of sugar because that was it was jam-making season. My point is that whilst <clears throat> lots of us railed against over wines, 
I know that we all enjoyed wines that probably, and from Bordeaux as well, and various other regions, we all enjoyed wine that probably had more chapelization than the legal limit. Is there any anything in terms of winemaking procedures that you would ever rule out? Because I'm largely, I don't really care how it's been made as it's, it's what it tastes like that I think that's, that's what really matters. But that's kind of that's kind of where I'm coming from. I mean, you know, the, the natural wine thing against rotor fermenters and flash detente and so on. Um, it depends where you start from. You know, uh, flash detente can make wine softer and uh, more agreeable. The, the key is to start with grapes that don't need you to do anything untoward to them. So the better the vineyards, the better the grapes, the, the simpler the process. But to say that um, <clears throat> in a year where um, you have got um, uh, harsher tannins or whatever, that, that, that one shouldn't do any of these, or you shouldn't do micro uh, ox, for example. Um, it, as I said, I go back to the kitchen. I've got, I, to be brutal, I've got more, more I love chefs. I love what cooks do. I love the imagination and the uh, the two things. One is the imagination, the readiness to try things, and two is the natural. Um, what goes with the territory, like if you like, is is actually listening to the customer. Because in a restaurant, if people don't order one of your dishes um, or they don't order it again, you change it. Whereas in the wine industry, you go, oh, "My father made it this way. My grandfather made it this way. I have to do the same as they did." And um, we have to <clears throat> educate the consumer to like the style that my father liked. Well, no. Well, fair enough if that's what you want to do, but that's not where we can. So uh, do you think that you know, critiquing w- uh, wine, writing about it, and has helped you make better wine or more commercially suitable wine? And is there anything that you sort of wish that you'd done slightly differently or, or would, um, would critique is it, if you were writing about yourself? I think, uh, <clears throat> yes, I think that the key, and it was interesting, um, the difference between the International Wine Challenge and um, certainly some other competitions, um, it, there are competitions where typicity becomes a, uh, a mantra. Um, and you know, the, the wine may not taste great, but it, at least it's typical of that grape and that place. From the, from the idea, obviously, from the days when... Charles Metcalf and then Derek Smedley and I were um, running it and then through all the other people who have been there since uh, today, people like Tim Atkin and Oz Clark still involved and others. Um, I think that tasting good and being a good drink is, um, to me, still paramount. And um, so once I'm not saying you you should um, celebrate and give high medals to a wine that is atypical, um, I think one should accept that there are people can make wines out of grapes that um, you, you, our, my Pinot Noir, our Pinot Noir from the Grand Noir, does not taste like Burgundy. It does taste like Pinot Noir. Our Chardonnay has Viognier in it, about 15% Viognier in it. Um, and it tastes enough like Chardonnay to be, um, first to feel happy to put Chardonnay on the label, but it says it, on the back label it talks about the Viognier. And uh, we do that because I don't want it to taste like Chablis. <clears throat> I don't want it to taste like Californian um, Chardonnay. I want it, or indeed Limu, which is down the road from us. Um, <clears throat> the key is to make a wine that actually tastes good. Is there, are there things that I would have preferred to have known? I think to, to have understood, that, I mean, I think as a wine writer, I did not understand the... I naively believed that making good wine was what mattered. Um, I now understand that that is one leg of a three-legged stool. And I actually, uh, I mean, in, in retrospect, I kind of knew it at the time because there were wines that we gave trophies to at the International Wine Challenge that did not get listings. Um, and you know, there was a, a great a Portuguese wine, I remember in particular, that, that, that we, we all fell in love with. But somehow or other, the UK market didn't have a place for it. And it did have a place for yet another skew in um, the, the Hardy's range or whatever it was at the time. So um, firstly, the fact the wine is good is only one element. Secondly, there is um, the marketing, the promotion. So obviously the fact that Hardy's had a name 
um, and had um, recognition with consumers was was hugely important. But and and thirdly, um, there's the, the distribution that that a brand like Hardy's um, had. And I'm not talking about Hardy, Hardy's particularly using it just as an example. So um, to me, from the beginning. We did understand about distribution, fortunately, when it's sort of about, about labeling, um, which is how Kevin Shaw got to be involved. Um, but I think that over time, we've really, the one thing you know is that you're often competing against people whose wine isn't necessarily, or you don't think it's as good as, 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 as yours, um, but they've either got better distribution or better marketing or, or, or deeper pockets. And um, it can be quite hard work. Following on from that, do you think there's a... Uh, there's a lot of people I've sort of see commenting, especially on Twitter and, and other places, who've obviously never worked in either a wine shop or making it, selling it or anything else. Do you think there's an argument that people maybe shouldn't comment on it if they've never had to make it or sell it? No, I'm sure. Look, the um, the movie business is full of great critics who've never made a never made a film um, and and elsewhere. So I, no, I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I think that there is an advantage to having done some of it and there's certainly an advantage to listening to people who've who've done that so i think that i learned yeah any success we've had and we're now at 3.8 million bottles in 60 odd countries so it's quite nice um that has been um entirely due to the what we've all learned and has been contributed by other people um One's own skills are just part of a mix. And I think that um, every now and then I find a wine writer, and I, this is probably me going back 20 years. I'm sure we, you know, the moment you're able to write a column in the first person singular, um, it's, you know, it's very easy and very tempting to imagine that you know all the answers. Um, I think that actually doing it does teach you a lot. And a certain amount of that is humility. And you respect, I think, that the thing that changed for me as a, as a wine writer was my relationship with wine producers. So um, within six months or a year of um, starting to make Le Grand Wine, we really started, very early days, I found myself talking to wine producers of various, various sizes, from smallest to largest, in a very different way to the conversations I'd had as a, as a wine writer because, you know, I had been to Tesco's head office in Chessant or whatever. I had actually, um, <clears throat> most recently, I, you know, I've, I've stood with the with a salesman for our distributor in the US in, a, in liquor stores in New Jersey waiting for the, the manager of the store to have his seven minutes with somebody else and to realise that that manager of that store isn't going to taste any of the wines. He's going to look at the label and he's going to look at the price and he's going to um, listen to whatever argument you've got that it will sell and he will take it or he won't take it, but he won't taste it. And those are the sort of things that I didn't understand as a uh, as a wine writer. Now, you, so you're nearly, what, four million bottles almost? And, um, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. What metrics do you use to track your um, you know, your sales and margins, et cetera? What are the key metrics you, you use to gauge success? <sighs> It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, obviously every year you can say, right, <clears throat> we sell X bottles of wine, we've opened in new markets. And, you know, I say glibly, oh, we're in 60 or 61, 62 markets. But that some of those we're selling pallets and others we're selling many, many containers. Um, and things change. So when we started, the US was our biggest, um, by far our biggest market. Um, the UK has always been a, a tricky market for us because we – we won't come down to the prices we for the wines we're making we haven't um, come down to the prices that producive markets have wanted us to um so certainly for those styles um so the uk's never been a big market on the other hand we've been in gordon ramsay restaurants we've been in the mandarin uh, oriental we've been in some really quite nice um places by the glass um so that's that's worked and these are wines that would be in the we're interesting because I think we're at the nine pound, um, we're in the sort of nine to 10 pound level. And, you know, to be in those stores, you really need to be ideally in the nine pound discounted to seven or eight discounted to, to, to six or whatever. And we, we haven't really fitted into that. Um, I think, um, I think the first thing to talk about, which you don't hear enough about, and I've, I've taught 
various classes and I've asked, you know, what letter, what word beginning with D is important in the in the wine world. And you get people go Didersheim and Dao and Duro and all those or Duro and the other things like that. Depletions. Really boring word, but it, you know, it's it's not what we have shipped um to uh, America or Russia or Vietnam. It's it's actually how those bottles are selling through. Because if they're not selling through, what you end up is a warehouse full of two or three shipments, and then one day they stop buying. Or uh, in the case of China, for example, you, you, you find you've they've all been ordering white wine for a while, and suddenly you've got um, your two vintages behind on some of your white wine that's that's been sitting there, um, and that's not what you want. So depletions, I think, are really really important. Um, and secondly, I think you could look at what your competitors are doing. Um, very something again. I really didn't understand as a wine writer was the the fact that um, shelves in wine shops and actually it's no different online, but but you might imagine it is are not made of elastic. They're not made of rubber or anything else. They're made of, of wooden metal or whatever plastic, but they are finite. Um, a retailer has a, has space for 200 or 2,000. It doesn't matter what that wine, that number is. That is the number of SKUs that retailer can um, actually uh, stock. So actually, you come along and you say, I've got a really delicious wine from, from Longadoc. And they go, I've got one of those. Well, you want another one? No, I've got one of those. My customers are happy. Persuade me to drop the one I've got because you know it's like being married i've got one wife i don't need another one um and that that is a huge issue i don't think most people in the wine industry i certainly didn't understand you've actually got to fight that corner and to say you, you want my wine um rather than another one and, and actually sometimes you are actually um you know we, we, a lot, you have a lot of friends in this business particularly if you're a wine writer but you are potentially saying actually I, I think you really need my wine rather than my friend's wines um and i think we don't necessarily think about that enough unfortunately um i think trends are important um understanding that where the market is going um and, and trying to keep up with it and once upon a time britain was at the head of that um Situation: People used to come to London Wine Fair to find out where uh, where the world was was heading, and I think that's no longer the case. And I think now you really do have to go to the US to see some of that. But Finland, there are lots of places that that, that, that are actually possibly ahead of the game um, in us, in, in the, rather than, than the UK. And or I so, and indeed, you could say that that there isn't one direction, and things are moving in different uh, direction at the same time. So you're getting sort of a lot of Repasso-style wines that have taken off in, in Scandinavia. We haven't really seen those in this country. Um, we've got uh, whiskey barrel wines that have taken off in the States. Again, we haven't seen them in this country, but that's not to say they won't come. Um, we've, the States has had hard seltzers for quite a while, um, say five years, uh, and they're just beginning to arrive here. And people say, oh, well, you know, they've never worked. Well, who's to say that this isn't the year or next year isn't the year that they will take off? Um, I think the other thing to say is social media. Um, we we're not as good at this as, as we should be. Um, to be very honest, it, it doesn't. It takes work. It's not so much money. It's it's it's, it's human effort and money. But how much um, of a mention are you getting, and how much of your uh, your competitors getting, and what are people saying about your wine? Are they saying good things, bad things, and also what is the context? You know, where are they drinking your wine? What are they? What are the situations that are, that are relevant? Because that's that's also relevant to your marketing effort. So I remember that Bordeaux did something a long time ago, which is fascinating, where they did internationally uh, the context in which Bordeaux was mentioned online. And in France, it was very much, uh, we are eating uh, X, Y, I said tonight, uh, which wine should we have or which Bordeaux should we have? Um, I think I think Denmark, I think, took a similar view. I'm not sure. But what I can tell you is that Britain and America, we didn't, the references did not include food to nearly the same extent. So it wasn't, we don't see wine and food nearly as as as, as linked and food matching as, as A, happens in some countries, and B, as many producers and indeed many critics um, kind of um, imagine. So actually understanding where 
where your wine fits in people's lifestyle to me is important. Um, <clears throat> is, is my wine um, a Saturday night wine? Is it a Wednesday night wine? Um, is it a wine that people are going to drink with food or without food? All of those things I think you need, really need to think about, and they may not be the same. The way my wine is consumed in India, we are the number one French brand in India, believe it or not. India is not a huge market, I have to say, but it's quite nice to be in that situation. Is probably not the same as the way our wine is consumed in Russia, where we're also number one. Um, but I think that you know, there are so many things that are different between those two countries that um, uh, you, you'd have to approach them differently. Now you will, so your wine's kind of, what, mid-price to premium sort of cusp kind of level. Um, what, kind, what are the real trends that you're seeing? We're on the cusp, so I think it's a good point. In the US, we're at $12, um, $11, $12. And I think that's another thing. You talk about metrics. Um, in America, they talk about the, the, the sweet spot. I mean, the first thing to say is it's the difference between the US and the UK. Um, if I'm with my uh, US distributors and I say, so, you know, how is Viognier doing in the States at the moment? They'll get out their calculate, the calculator and, and, and go, bum, 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 and then come out and say, ah, Viognier sales in the last three months are up by 1.2% or down by 5.3% or whatever. Um, and you see this actually in coverage in the US of TV shows, um, you know, the new series of... Um, X, Y, or Z TV show, um, you will read in the New York Times or whatever that um, audiences for the first episode of series five are down by X percent or are up by whatever, and the chances of there being a series six look good or look bad or whatever. They're, they're always taking the temperature. We don't have any of that here. Um, and so by the same token, they have something they call the sweet spot. And they will always be saying, you know, the sweet spot for wine at the moment is at $15 or is at $12 or in a range of prices. And I think there's something to be learned from that. Um, I think that even though we don't talk about it, it's probably true. Um, I think that people do buy between in, within price ranges. And one of the, the, the problems in the UK, I would say, is our total range of prices is relatively narrow. So I'd say that most wines in this country are bought um, between six and twelve pounds, and with a, a huge proportion of that, majority of that being at under ten still. Um, whereas, and, and many of the people who will buy in those rates do not really stray up to the eighteen to twenty pound. Um, maybe once or twice a year, if at all. In America, you'll get a range of people buying at um, a lower price for Wednesday and a much higher price for some for Saturday. And I, I see that in Australia as well. So that's, I think, also interesting. When you look at, at um, data, which I love looking at, it's always worth bearing in mind that the average or the mean um, may not be telling you very much. Um, and, you know, in the UK, certainly an extra, and this is true anywhere else, but I think, you know, an extra 50 pence on a price can make a huge difference on sales. Um, and suddenly you just you, you fall off a cliff if you just go um, too far over, over a particular point. And that then leads into um, the other thing, which is, I think, very important to talk about, is different kinds of distribution. You know, how much um, we talk about the indie, the independents in the UK. Well, there are 900 of them. Um, how much wine can you sell through those 900 independents? But if you're with the right distributor, um, you may be able to build up quite a good volume. But that volume competes with difficulty against just getting into one supermarket um, uh, with the right the right skew. So, uh, whereas you look at uh, the US and the Indies, by definition, are and the three tier system obviously is behind that far more important. So, I think there are more independent wine retailers in New York and New Jersey than in the whole of the UK. Have you um, tried any direct to consumer, are you, or is you just too big, or is it something you'd consider? Like we are. Um, we do a little bit in France, but basically the, our business model, um, despite being, I mean, let's be very honest about this, by US or even Australian standards, 4 million bottles is not that big. Um, you know, 4 million cases is would be more to the more to the point. Um, so we don't have the, the level of infrastructure and so on that we, we, we might have as a, as a new world wine brand. Um, and uh, the nature of our business, the way we set it up, is working with uh, Jean Delibert in France. Um, we we haven't really got the infrastructure to do um, direct selling 
in the way that I might like to. I think in the future is something certainly that that is on our on our agenda, and I think it's it's going to grow everywhere um, in in many ways. But I think a lot of things are going to change in distribution as well. I think we're going to see more pop ups. We're going to see more events um, of one kind or another, and probably. I don't think the number of shops is going to, to grow. And I do question the um, what's going to happen to wine retail in supermarkets. Now, you mentioned you're number one in Russia and you've got um, there's a number of other markets that, that you're trying in. Which are, your, which are the ones you're really seeking to capitalise on going forward? Are there any like emerging markets you've got your eyes on? Or were you just... Oh, Africa is going to be... Africa uh, is definitely high on our... Um, you know, we have, the, we have a sort of map of the world in which we've got where we are doing well, which generally means, you know, couldn't we do better? Uh, where we are doing middling, um, which there is the same, same sort of question, if you like, uh, but or where we've sort of... And then there's the, the, the small beachheads where we have a few pallets of wine are going in and then the places where we're really underperforming and um, certainly there are countries in Europe that I'd like to be doing better in. Um, France has never been a success for us yet which is not surprising really because French attitude towards branded wine is generally, unless it's champagne, it's generally negative. Um, we do very well in Belgium by contrast um, and uh, so I think you know I'd love to do better in Germany. I'd love to do better in France. I'd love to do. I think we're we're, we're looking at different styles for the UK. I've heard, to be honest, to hit the price points the UK needs to hit, it may not be the the the, the, the particular styles that we're selling, for example, in in Belgium. Um, but you know what's fascinating, and it, it is a a real uh, eye opener to many Brits, particularly, I guess. Um, the how much wine you can sell in, which we're doing, for example, um, in Estonia and Latvia, Lithuania, the Baltics, you know, places that most of us have never been to and probably don't even think about. We're moving quite a lot of wine into those countries. Um, so, you know, Asia is obvious. China is going to go on growing. Um, so, but, you, you know, that point of eggs and baskets is crucial. Uh, we were, the States was our biggest um, single market. China, so uh, Russia came up from nowhere to to rival it, and then um, Donald Trump slapped his twenty five percent tariff on French wines, and that really didn't help us in America. And so we were very glad to have Russia, but I'm very uh, aware that something could happen in Russia at any time. Um, there have been moments in Russia where where rules and laws have changed, and of course um, the Australians are going through the experience of being overly exposed in China. So I think that's, you know, I think being able to be flexible um, helps a lot. So, you know, to be able to say, well, we've lost X percent in one market, but we're building in another. Um, and just try to understand what each market really wants. So, yes, it's a global, we're globalized, or the world is globalized, but to understand that um, I think, repeating myself slightly what we were saying earlier, but what Russia needs is not necessarily what the US needs. So to give you an example, which may be relevant, um, the on-trade wines in Russia have different labels um, to the off-trade. They're not completely different, but they, um, Kevin Shaw um, designed a different version of the label um, because that's what works in Russia. I think that makes perfect sense. As far as I'm concerned, I would do that everywhere if I could. Um, I'd definitely do that in the US um, because there is that question of, apart from champagne, um, when you see the same wine in a restaurant that you've seen in a supermarket or a retail store and you you know, you know know the price for it and so on, um, it, it doesn't quite work mentally. Um, but, of course, that brings you into stock management because let's say you're putting five or ten different wines into a market, you'd have to have... 10 or 20 different um, stock units in that market, the on-trade and the off-trade, which is a nightmare because you'd end up you'd potentially with too many restaurant-labeled wines and not enough um, retail-labeled wines. Somehow in Russia, we seem to be getting that right. But that's, you know, that is, that is, it is a challenge. I think the key everywhere does lie in having very good distributors and having a good understanding relationship communication with them. Um, and if you haven't got that, and if you're if you haven't got the right kind of distributor, 
um, then you will always underperform. Now, when, when the, the tariffs came in in, um, in the States, what was the immediate knock-on effect of that? Were you just delisted oh, everything from... fell off a cliff. Yeah, well, basically, <laughs> sure. there was a... No, there was a... People pre-ordered, so, so people knew they were coming at one point, so there was a threat, so there was a certain amount of stocking up beforehand, a bit like Brexit, if you like. Um, but uh, no, when that happens, you you suddenly find everything stops. And then you go through, <coughs> the, the in the case of the US um, model, the initial rule was that if you were over 14%, um, you were exempt. So, you know, there was thought of, should we... Um, you know, should we make new cuvées for America with with more alcohol? Well, that wasn't our style. Um, I think various people, I think, did look at it that way. Um, I don't know who who did and didn't actually go that far, but um, certainly, I I don't really want to make a you know, if if, if a wine comes in at 14, 14 and a half, because that's the way it, it naturally comes out, that's fine. But a, it's never been the style of our of Le Grand Noir, um, which, despite its name, perversely is not grand. It, it, it's it's Aimed to be aimed to be moderate in in alcohol and, and weight, um, but also you know basically once you set a style, and I think this is actually you've given me a point, this slight tangent, but I think it is quite worth going down. Um, the to me, I see a range of wines. Very often, I, I, I when I've been judging wines in the past, when I look at them, the sometimes I see no um, relationship between um, wines with the same label, different uh, grape varieties or skews from the same label. So you asked early on about um, residual sugar. And, you know, I've seen wines where one wine has got loads of sweetness. And I think, okay, this is a commercial wine that aims at the market that want a load of sweetness. And I'll see the next wine on that, in that range, and it's nothing like it. And, you know, that you're just screwing with the heads of the consumer. Um, I think that I, I like to think of fashion labels, you know, Armani, Chanel, have a style or styles, and Versace has a different style. Um, Kenzo has a different style. And anything you see that's um, from Kenzo, you kind of recognize, or anything from Armani you recognize. I think that should be true of a brand. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's the Sauvignon or the Chardonnay or the Cabernet or the Syrah or whatever it is. There should be the same sort of winemaking um, Signature. So that is why, going back to this, why I wouldn't have felt comfortable about us having a 14 and a half wine suddenly appearing in our wine, in our range with the same label. If we ever do one, it would have a different label and a, and a different style um, to it. So um, we had to a uh, lot of discussion about prices. Um, and we and our um, distributors in America, we had to take a hit. We did have, which is not what you want to do, we did have to cut down some of our marketing plans, which is, I would always advise people to make that the last thing you, you cut, but we, we had to cut a bit of that. Because <clears throat> even then, you know, we had to hit, you know, I talked about sweet spots in pricing points. You, you, you really don't want to go through particular um, ceilings because otherwise, you know, sales will, will definitely be, suffer very badly. Um, so we had to go through all that. And a lot of communication, and then bit by bit, you you build back up, and then of course, by the time you've you've built back up, then at some point the tariff comes off. But the danger, of course, is while this is happening, um, Italy wasn't subject to the same um, rules, and uh, America wasn't. And very so, you know, at the moment when somebody buys our Pinot Noir, our Chardonnay, they're not buying a Californian wine at that point, and when they stop buying ours, um, the Californian takes our place. And then you've got to get that customer back or get another customer. Now, this is uh, kind of talking to your legacy, I suppose. Uh, but do, you know, do, what wine competitions do you go for? Do, and do you find wine competitions help sell your wine now you're making it? So basically, uh, I started the National Wine Challenge, or we with, with Charles Metcalf, we started the International Wine Challenge back in 1983. And I was involved until 2005. Um, and very fully involved um, throughout those years. And I then also took it to China and Russia and India and Poland and Vietnam and all sorts of other places. So that remains, that's my, my, my grown-up child, um, but, but I'm not involved um, like, like a parent with a grown-up child. I'm not involved in its <laughs> life on a daily basis at all. Um, and I'm, since then, I've been, I was invited around the sort of 2006, when just after that, 
uh, I was invited to get involved in something called Mundus Vini in Germany, which is uh, associated with Meiniger's Wine Business International, the magazine I'm associated with there. And it's a very different competition, different in style. It's about 10,000 wines. Um, and uh, it's fun because it's, it's run in a different way. The, the range of wines is different because it's in mainland Europe. Um, and I see tasters from all over the world there. I'm actually heading over there next week to do this. We do twice a year. I'm doing the, the, the autumn version of that. Um, so those are the two. Now, in terms of your question of which ones are important, I think you've got to draw um, two lines. Those which ones are important to the trade and which ones are important to um, consumers. And in this sense, I think when I say the trade, I would include engaged consumers in that, but there aren't very many of them in the real in real terms. That's a maximum of 10 or 15% of the wine drinking public. So basically those people, I think, do know and respect the IWC, decanter in, uh, I think, sort of top of the pile. We've now got numbers that are coming up. You know, you've got a London competition and sommelier competition, IWSC and others, but I would still in, in, in Europe, still put decanter and the IWC at the top of the pile, but they're different in their styles. And I put my wines into both of those and I won't necessarily get the same medal um, from those two competitions, which is which is interesting, or indeed in, in other competitions. Um, but I'd also say that consumers really don't have very much knowledge of any of these. So, um, you know, basically put two or three gold stickers onto a bottle and nobody really knows whether the... Um, the, the, the associated wine competition of Mongolia or versus whatever. If it's got a convincing sounding name and it's got a gold medal on it, people feel reassured. Um, and so, you know, to be fair, Gallo's Barefoot is the most awarded wine range in America. Now, you know, Barefoot wines um, are, I think, a very, by definition, they're the most successful range because they're the biggest selling brand in America. Um, whether I would think of those as award winners in a decanter IWC context, to be blunt, no, I wouldn't. Um, but they obviously are entered into a lot of competitions in the US, and they obviously do get enough medals of some kind or other to justify that claim. And that actually is a ticks a box for a consumer buying a bottle in a shop. They can they, they they're familiar with the barefoot logo. They know the grape style, and it says they've got lots of medals. So do you market your winnings much? Or We do. I mean, basically, we do. But um, having said that, I am actually today, I am A, I'm as interested in the fact that we win gold medals from things like El Atable, the El Magazine um, uh in in-house competition, if you like, which has done us a lot of good in in France and Belgium, and more good in France and Belgium than than an IWC medal would be, for example. Um, but I also have to say, and this is going to be controversial, um, Vivino, we are um, actually uh, we get four four point one points. I think five of our wines, uh, four or five of our wines, have got um, four points or more than four points in. Um, from Vivino, with with you know with quite large numbers of Vivino votes, as it were, and um, peer reviews are um, you know they upset critics obviously because critics think that only wine should only be viewed by themselves, which is probably what I would have thought at the time. Um, but a if you look at the Vivino scores, they do overlap pretty well with um, the Wine Spectator and um, uh, the Wine Advocate in the US, but um, I, you know, I think that there's no reason necessarily to believe that um, a jury of one's peers are not going to be as good at judging a wine as the writer for the Daily, whatever, the Daily Beagle. Um, and I think that's that's very valid. So I have no problem in promoting, we will have no problem in promoting Vivino scores, just as it has to be said, um, I think you'll find that Berry Brothers has quoted some of its um, customers' comments on wines just as Tesco does. So I think we, we need to be very aware that the days of the all-powerful critic, um, the Robert Parker uh, is the obvious example, but any all-powerful critics in any field, be that movies, books, plays, whatever, I think are possibly numbered. And 
um, I get a lot of flack when I go into this, but I, I traveled around with, with family. We had a holiday in Vietnam two years ago, and I relied on TripAdvisor and The Lonely Planet um, and The Rough Guide. And I can tell you that they were all equally good, but actually, by definition, um, TripAdvisor was the most up-to-date because the other two were books. And it didn't let us down. Um, and so I can only judge by those experiences. And just as people who trust Vivino or indeed trusted Parker will say, you know, I, I like what I get, um, that's what really counts in the end. Is there anything in the wine world that's not being spoken about that you think should be? Uh, it depends whether you're talking about the consumer or the. I mean, there's lots of it, huge amounts. I mean, first, <laughs> I meant more from a more as a brand owner as or or a, or sort of producer type thing. I mean, is there any margins? That, margins, okay. What margins, margins. do you work uh, well, on? Well, first, no, first things, margins, which are far too low for far too many people. When, you know, I go to the bulk wine fair, and I see how cheap um, it is possible to buy, how cheaply it's possible to buy um, really drinkable wine. Um, you know the the. the, the Places like Spain, Argentina, and elsewhere can make wine incredibly cheaply. Um, but somehow or other, instead of, you know, you can buy, you can make T-shirts incredibly cheaply as well, but people are making money on T-shirts um, where, uh, unfortunately, the appellation system, um, which I believe in absolutely in terms of its informational value, if you like, the fact that uh, a Merceau Charme um, tastes different to a Merceau Perrier and Merceau tastes different to um, Puligny, um, having lived in Burgundy, for example, or um, Moulis tastes different to, to Santa Sef. Yes, I, that, that all makes absolute sense. The problem is when those tails become the dog. And what that means is that at some point, suddenly, Margot, if you make the, 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 the most ordinary of Margots, will sell for a higher price um, than all but the very rare, um, incredibly well-made Moulis, which will always sell for more than a really well-made Minervois. So essentially, the, 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 the region becomes the, a brand in itself, but without anyone running that brand. And then, of course, what then happens is, I, mean, I hear so many people talking about commoditization, and they talk about big wine, you know, big wine, and that's obviously Gallo and Constellation and the big. They're not causing the problem. The problem, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that um, I can buy Barolo. I did buy a Barolo last week in uh, Lidl for £12. And um, I can buy Barolo for, as we can yeah, name your price, but let's say 200 so twelve pounds to two hundred pounds for something, or even just twelve to a hundred. You know, it's eight times differential, and it's just got that word on the label. Um, and some of those uh, wines at the, at the lower price range have actually got some kind of medal on them, coming on occasionally. You, you will get some some good examples, and you'll get um, a supermarket Chablis from the La Chablisienne. Um, we used we had that at the challenge. I well remember somebody's own label Chablis got itself a gold medal. Um, we are screwing with the consumer's head. You know, what are we to tell the consumers? How much should you pay for a Barolo? What's the right price for Barolo? Um, the £12 Barolo from Little tasted perfectly decent. Did it taste like a great Barolo? No. Did the people I was with and who I drank it with actually feel they knew what a great Barolo tasted like? Not necessarily. Um, so I think that's far more of a problem because what then happens if I'm making a wine Minervois or Barolo, um, I am driven down by the commoditization. When we put wine into supermarkets, um, which is really as recently effectively as the 1950s, 60s, and then in real volume terms later than that, it was a, it was a, a, a bargain with the devil because it gave wine distribution that it never had. It made wine a product that people could buy, and certainly in countries like Britain, America, um, Australia, people who didn't drink wine suddenly saw wine alongside beer and biscuits and were happy to buy. So it, it actually single-handedly helped to give us huge volume uh, growth. But it also put wine alongside beer and biscuits. 
And so it meant that price became um, a, uh, a primary driving force. And so for the supermarket to have a Pinot Grigio for £4.99 or whatever the, the low price is became the thing. And now I've got a Pinot Grigio that I want to sell for £7.99 or whatever. And they're going to say, well, why do we need this? You know, we've got the £4.99 one. And I think well, that is a very unhealthy place to be. And then added to that, within the industry, and I see it a lot because I do quite a lot of social media, there is a kind of, what I think is weird, there's a kind of, um, there's an anti-branding feeling. People don't like branded wines um, because they think that you know, appellations should be the thing. Um, profitability is a question. You know, I think when you know, people are making too much money is something I hear too often. Um, and lastly, you then realize that the other side of the coin is celebrity wines, which people I interact with online go, oh, you know, it's awful, it's dreadful, why, what, how? And so at the weekend, I was away with, <coughs> with friends, and I, I had that aforementioned Barolo, and I had, some, I had a couple of bottles of Kylie, um, Kylie wine, I had the Kylie Pinot Noir, um, which comes from the Yarrow Valley and is made by De Bortoli and is a perfectly decent Yarrow Valley um, Pinot Noir. It's probably higher priced than I'd want it to be, but it tastes like a Yarrow Valley Pinot Noir. It doesn't taste sweet or, you know, anything that, that, that untoward. And I think to myself, you know, you walk into a supermarket, you see a word, you see the word Barolo, you see the word Kylie and Pinot Noir. They're doing the same job. The thing about it is that every time I say I see Kylie Pinot Noir, I know it will taste the same, and I know it'll be the same price. The next time I see Barolo in another store, it's going to be a different price, and it's going to taste different. So, what's the solution? Do you think for things like Barolo? We just does the industry need to be better at branding? I mean, a lot of people find commercial a dirty word, which I think is a bit. Well, what we do, um, we by people like you and me and so on, we wouldn't normally buy little Barolo or Aldi Barola, you know. And I, I know a lot of when certainly when I'm talking to people in the States, and certainly in New York where nobody, you can't buy wine in supermarkets, I know I'm talking to wine critics who've never been in it once, they never, <coughs> rarely if ever go into a supermarket. They go into lovely little stores in Brooklyn or wherever, and they know the names of all the right producers of Barola. So, you know, they, on the one hand, they don't like brands, but on the other hand, you know, um, Chiara Boskis is a brand. Um, Ratti is a brand. <laughs> we just don't like to think of them as brands, but they're behaving essentially. You, you, you recognize them, you buy them. They're a brand, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, as far, I, I think that it should be brand first, region or grape second. And it, you know, by that stage, I will trust. And anyone lives in Burgundy, I had the choice of did I buy La Reine Pedoc Clovujo? Or did I buy Lafarge Bourgogne Rouge? You know, Lorraine Pedoc in those days made pretty ordinary, very ordinary Burgundy. And Lafarge made delicious wine at every level. So I would buy the Bourgogne Rouge from Lafarge every day of the week. So that's where I learned about um, brand first. Um, even though in Burgundy, of course, um, the brand is usually, or certainly was in those days, the small words at the bottom of the label rather than the big word. But that's, as far as I'm concerned, that should be the way it is. The big word should be the brand. And the small word should be the region, the grape, which then tells you the style of the wine that you're getting from the brand. So I trust Drouin. And then within the Drouin range, I am buying a Clos Vougeot or a Santenay or whatever. And I trust Le Grand Noir. And I am trusting that their GSM or their Pinot Noir or their Malbec are all going to be cast in a similar winemaking mould, but with the flavour of Malbec or Pinot Noir or GSM, which differentiates them. Cool. Well, listen, I'm very conscious of time, and you've been really generous with this. Um, there's one final question I always like to ask people kind of on uh, ad hoc. Uh, what do you think are the major causes for optimism at the moment in the wine, uh, wine world? Uh, a young generation. I think that's fascinating. Um, I think we're getting a new generation coming in. Um, in distribution in the UK, there's, there's, there's a big handover about, is, is just happening, beginning to happen. But I think you're seeing it everywhere. And I think that's what's interesting is that is that young generation is 
helping to mean that young French people, today's generation, are getting more interested in wine than their parents, who were less interested than their parents. And that, on the one hand, is, uh, and, and you know, a number of, 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 of certainly critics will be delighted to, to say, ah, oh, that's going to be great for, for natural wines and orange wines and so on. But it's also going to be good for bourbon barrel wines and all sorts of funky brands, of funky blends and brands and so on. Um, I think we're going to see all sorts of new things happening. Um, and there will be all sorts of verbal punch-ups between the people who don't like the idea of wine made with marijuana leaves or whatever it's going to be, versus the people who think your wine should be made with or trodden by foot and um, no no touch of human intervention at all. It's all going to happen, and I think that's great. But I, the, the other side of the coin is that we are going to be drinking less, and we're going to be paying more. Um, and that, I think that's also a good thing. Um, but we need to get there. And between here and there, there's going to be a lot of attrition. So you asked me for my, my um, optimism. My optimism is that when we come out the other side, there will be a smaller wine industry uh, in terms of players. Um, but those players will be more professional and they will be uh, making good wine and hopefully making a good living out of it. Between here and there, there will be a lot of casualties and lots of very nice, very good, very well-meaning, hardworking people who make very good wines will give up or get taken over or whatever, or their kids will not take over their businesses. So, you know, it's going to be a – evolution um, is amoral. There are always victims and there are always winners. Cool. That's, that's a nicely profound note to end on, I think, excellent. Um, very cool. Well, well, listen, thank you so much for your time. That was, um, that was excellent. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. A pleasure. All right, well, thank you. Perfect. Listen, thank you so much, Robert. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, though. Take care. You Thanks. Too. Have a good weekend. Bye.